0: Welcome to the Redemption 10P Podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. On today's episode, Jim Mullins, Wilbur Kervich, and Tina Dare will be continuing their discussion on the implications for all of life within Leviticus and Exodus. This is part two of a two-part episode. let listen in. So one of the,
1: the things that you brought up, which I thought was, was good that we should focus on, is... You talked about sacrifice and how food was a part of the worship. Yeah. Um, I think it's like the first eight chapters of Leviticus. It's describing all of these different feasts. And I, th- I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes it was kind of hard for me to kind of get straight what was going on and mm. who's waving the blood on what <laughs> and what part of the body that you get to eat and what you don't get to eat and the differentiation between the feasts. Um, But one of the things that's evident that we've talked about before, I I actually preached on this and have written on this uh, a couple of times, uh, is that what we see in the book of Leviticus is that worship includes all of our senses. In order to really get into the book of Leviticus and understand what's going on, we can't just, like, read the words and, like, read it as this instruction manual. Mm. You have to kind of imagine seeing this animal that you've raised through the work of your hands bleed out mm. and and die. And and what that would mean about the seriousness of sin. And then, you know, it also engages your sense of smell as uh, the aroma goes up to the Lord of the, the fatty parts that were were put on the altar and and how even god himself you know engages relationally with us mm. with his senses of of, mm. of taking our worship as through the sense of smell but whether it's the feasts or the sacrifices you see the sense of uh smell of sight of of sound let me actually ask you yeah. uh, I'll, I'll go through the senses and you tell me how in israel's worship they would have engaged those senses. So, what would they have heard? How would the sense of sound be engaged in worship?
0: When when I think of that, that's that's the first one that I think of, right? Is sound, and I picture like you mm-hmm. know this goat or this animal that's that's making it sounds. You know, my, my youngest son is two and a half, so he's really big on like what's a puppy say? Woof, right? Like, <laughs> and so this animal, you know, like you pointed out that you've raised the best animal that you have, mm. and you're hearing it. Right, and it's crying out, and then all of a sudden it's quiet,
2: hmm.
0: and the finality of that. Yeah, and knowing that the weight of that sin should be on your shoulders, yeah. but it's not, and there's there's grace in that, there's mourning in that. I, I feel like that sound would be so powerful to hear, and then it just stops.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think one of them that stands out for me is uh, the use of trumpets. Um, with the year of jubilee you could imagine for a moment that in the year of jubilee um, if you were poor and you didn't have money but you knew that land would be returned to you in the year of jubilee and you were going to get some property through which that you could provide for your family and you hear that trumpet sound go off Mm. signaling the year Mm. of jubilee that trumpet would be a sound of God's grace and his restoration and provision hmm. for your family um Tina what about the sense of smell what would they be smelling in worship
2: hmm. uh, What I already said I stole from you Jim so this is <laughs> this is a challenge <laughs> no. I haven't thought through this too much um Man, I do think it it would be this really interesting mix, though, because when you think about like good food grilling and how it is a pleasant mm. aroma to God, mm. there is this like this really goodness there, and then also you know it it tends to stir your own hunger and kind mm. of you connect with it in your body. Um, but then I imagine with the sacrifices in particular, you know, we were talking about this in our RC. Someone who has a better imagination than me thought about. The, the blood splattered on the temple mm. and how it was animal it was skin and so would that blood and all those things just stay in there and what would those smells be like as they permeated over time? Mm. Would it be kind of almost the stench of this communal sin over time being held and kind of soaked into that? So Whoa. so yeah, it's kinda yeah. interesting mm. to think
1: about. Yeah, and you also think about all the incense that they're using mm. and frankincense and all yeah. that stuff. They were like the original essential oils people, <laughs> um, where it just like you know when you run into an essential oils person that they smell like, like the spice cabinet just fell on them or something like that. <laughs> guilty, the, the, yeah, guilty. That's that's Will Vercure. Um But you would you would have all these smells of frankincense. I don't know what frankincense smells like, but I imagine. What does it smell like? You use frankincense? I do. I do use frankincense. <laughs> All right. Tell us what it smells like.
0: Um, frankincense, it's a—it's like a, a very rich, earthy um, smell. It kind of smells like, like, I don't know, this is going to not make sense, but it smells like antiques. Like it smells hmm. like, an, I would imagine like things in the olden days smelled. Hmm. Um, so- and it's, it's interesting because it's used for like mental clarity and it can actually help relieve pain.
1: Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I need some of that about 3 o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> when I'm not thinking straight. Uh, well, you know, we've talked about this, and we, we see this not just in Leviticus and in Exodus, but we see throughout the whole Bible the engagement of the full senses in our relationship with God. Everything from people would mourn sin with sackcloth and ashes, this un- uncomfortable material that would agitate you. We see it in celebrating our union with Christ in baptism. We don't just like say a little phrase about how we're uh, unified with Christ, but we actually immerse ourselves in water, signifying the death that we, that we participate in his death and then emerging Mm -hmm. out of uh, the water, signaling our, our new life that's bound with him Um, We see it in communion, how we engage our taste buds in the remembrance of Christ. And I think what's really important is that today the way most people imagine prayer is not like a human that has the fullness of senses, but like a computer that just sits in a stationary place transferring information. Back and forth to some distant server. And I think that's partially why people's prayer lives Mm. are so boring, to be honest. And that they don't view prayer as this rich engagement with God, but like this task Mm. where you have to kind of sit and time out and think holy thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's hard uh, because we don't know what that looks like. So would you guys tell me some ways that you have engaged your senses in the worship of God and in prayer. Uh, will, why don't we start with you?
0: Sure. So I don't know when I started doing this, but one of the simplest things that I do is, uh, you know, it, it, redemption every week, we, we take communion and um, I will choose if I dip in the, in the juice or the wine, depending on kind of like where, where my heart is, where my spirit is. And if it's like a joyful response to what God is doing, then I'll, I'll dip in the juice because it's sweet. And if it's, you know kind of more mourning or introspective or lamenting then I'll dip in the wine with the you know more of a bitter taste um, one of the things that I've done is when I had a longer commute to work than I have now using the route um, my commute route to work to create a sort of like physical or um, um, like prayer guide so as I'm driving out of my neighborhood I'm praying for my family I would drive past some businesses so pray for the, the flourishing of the city around me um, I would get on the 202 uh, on the out way east and drive past the Superstition Mountains and you know seeing God's grandeur in the mountains I would would be my time of praise of, of who God is and what he's like and then I would I would curve uh, around the 202 and start heading into work and at that time I was uh, running a homeless men's shelter and so thinking about work thinking about the brokenness in in my life in our communities Ways that, you know, we could press against the brokenness to, to display the kingdom. Um, it was kind of how I would I would end my, my drive into work mm. um, or just some of the things.
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, I think a couple of things for me. One is a little bit more uh, kind of traditional and simple. But when I'm confessing sin before God, I try to get on my knees or kind of... Um, like, lay kind of prostrate and, and just physically sensing kind of my nearness to the earth and, and uh, reverence. Um, mm-hmm. I think it really ties me, honestly. If I'm just kind of sitting in my bed or sort of, you know, in a really comfortable position, I think sometimes the weight of my sin and just the goodness and, and the, the holiness of God isn't really felt embodied in me. So that's when I, I try to practice. And then um, one is when I'm working. Um, So I'm a bartender, and when we get there really early and do our prep and kind of cultivate and get all these ingredients together, we do all of our ingredients from scratch by hand. And um, when I'm prepping those things, I really connect with the smell. And my favorite, one of my favorite smells in the world is fresh mint, that mojito kind of Mm. green mint and anytime I smell that, no matter who's around or what's going on, I just stop and I close my eyes and I just smell in the goodness of God. And it's this reminder um, to pray for uh, the, the goodness that I'm cultivating for people and pray that they would enjoy it and give glory to God um, rather than just consume it um, kind of mindlessly. And so that's one is really connecting with those ingredients and praying over them uh, to be a gift to people. And then I think natural, kind of the natural creation, the created world really tends to be the place where my heart gets drawn most to kind of worship and awe of God and having an imagination for the ways that he blesses and loves us. So one example is When I open up my front door, um, there's this tree that releases these really beautiful yellow flowers pretty much every day. And so when I open up my door and I start to walk, there's literally these flowers that are just paving my way almost. And and one day I was praying and I just felt, you know, uh, God impressed upon me that like I am I am a part of his bride and as I go out into his world that he loves hmm. he is paving the way with flowers just like a bride approaching uh, her groom and it, and it's just this beautiful picture that that this is it's it, it, it's it's true and good and that the physical world isn't separate from these spiritual realities
1: that's really good mm-hmm. that's really good yeah what would you do if there was like bird poop out there <laughs> 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 no but I I can definitely resonate with that when it comes to ingredients. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the things that we do is we will cook food, uh, recipes from different cultures, Mm -hmm. from different parts of the world, uh, to remind us to pray for them. So we'll pray for Iran as we cook Iranian dishes or Mm -hmm. Afghani dishes, Mm -hmm. um, especially places that are experiencing a lot of turmoil. That's part of our way of engaging in uh, prayer as we look at current events and just pray for the flourishing of different countries and the extension of the gospel. Mm. Um, another one that comes to mind for me is uh the the significance of place mm. so I have a a basketball court that I return to often uh, it's near the house where I grew up in, mm. and that when I was living in that neighborhood it was some of the most painful times that you could imagine, but God carried me through that. Mm -hmm. And His grace was so unbelievably palpable. And I remember just going out and playing basketball to just escape some of the craziness that was going on. And so I will return uh, to that basketball court probably once a month at least, or every other month. And I'll just go shoot hoops out there with God and remember what he carried me through in mm-hmm. that particular season. And that place is like a holy place almost. I mean, there's nothing s- significant about the place in and of itself, but it's a place of remembering God's goodness. And I think when it comes to place, you have something interesting that you do. Will, you you do something with uh, street art and prayer. W- what does that look like?
0: Yeah, so this is something that I kind of started doing um, this year, and it really would love to... to in, Kind of engage more, but um, there's been a couple different times when I've been in other cities or even around Phoenix, taking some some walks through um, areas of the city where there's street art, and just taking time to look at it and appreciate it. Appreciate the fact that somebody you know took the time and energy to, to create this hmm. this beauty in, in the midst of a busy city where you know everyone kind of has their earbuds in and, and heads down, um, but using that as as a prayer guide. And so seeing, you know, what, um, what the artists are trying to communicate, um, through this, uh, there's a beautiful alleyway in, in Phoenix that's full of, um, that's full of street art and it's almost completely covered. Mm. Um, there's, there's a big effort to, to finish it up and, um, there's some just beautiful images, a lot of, um. Uh, Latino Americans have have contributed to this, and and there's images of, of people that um, you know they they look to as heroes, and um, mm-hmm. some of the brokenness that they experience through um, different aspects of, of things that are going on in our country. There's a there's a really cool. It kind of starts at the beginning of the alleyway. This really cool uh, piece that's a, a phoenix, kind of mm-hmm. rising up from the brokenness of this city. That's that's decorated in. Uh, just beautiful artwork and, and the colors are so rich and, and seeing the beauty in that in the midst of the city, you know, you're in an alleyway, right? So, so there's all this beautiful art right next to dumpsters and, you know, big trucks are making deliveries and all kinds of smells and, you know, broken bottles and cigarette butts and, and these types of things. And, and I think, you know, there's something about that um, that art, that street art that has this, this visceral response that in the midst of, you know, the poverty of the inner city, in the midst of the brokenness and, um, you know, all of these things, there's still beauty to be found there. And I think that that's a very rich uh, gospel image, that in the midst of our brokenness, the word put on flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us, right? In the midst of it, in the midst of the wandering of the Israelites, right? God's presence is there. And so being able to, to have the eyes to see and the creativity or imagination to see God in, in those places, um, it was really helpful.
2: That's so great. Do you know the streets that we could go? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's right by where it used to be Cartel in downtown Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that turned into... Is it Kaleidoscope or something different?
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's like First Street mm-hmm. and... I don't know. It's just First Street. There's a, the Marketplace 1 building, if you know yeah. where yeah. that's at. It's just right start
2: wandering there. through the alleyways in downtown Phoenix and you'll find it. Yeah, Yep,
1: yep, okay. yep. Um, well, I want to close with one last thing in both exodus and leviticus i think one of the most distinct things that the surrounding nations would see is that israel's god yahweh was a god who cared for the most vulnerable where would where would we see that if someone was opening up exodus and leviticus um where would you tell them to look for that Mm. How about you, Tina?
2: Hmm. I'll start as an exodus and we we'll can take over on Leviticus. Cool.
1: Um,
2: I think, I, I think I, I've been really trying, um, as I've read, you know, you move into Leviticus and you quickly kind of forget this exodus story, at least I do, and start focusing on these kind of laws and, and these different things and bringing it um, back into my own context. But I've been really trying to sit with this reality that these people were this just this completely oppressed you know slave nation that we just see the injustice against against them just ramping up i mean at at one point there was um this uh um what's it called killing of of groups of people uh, genocide genocide thank you genocide against against these baby boys and and just trying to feel that weight and, and imagining people today, um, groups that that are oppressed, uh, currently refugees, and, and that this is a reality for people around our world. Like, not not kind of this small group far off, but this is a reality for our next door neighbors. And this is the history of, of a really um, large minority of our country, that this is their heritage and their history. And... Man, just really sitting with the fact that God didn't enter in and say, "Hey, just be stronger." Kind of like you know, fix fix your problems, or or you know, just just submit more, or you know, like you can't you can't um, endanger these these other people. Like just kind of stay stay with the status quo, but that God Himself. Uh, entered in, and he called people that experience the privilege. We see the um, the Egyptian midwife stand up and risk their lives uh, for justice. Then we see Pharaoh's daughter um, stand up and rescue this baby boy that was destined for death. Um, and and uh, then we see Moses, who is actually this recipient of this privilege, even though his his cultural racial identity was one of of the slave nation. And we see him um, not just continue to accept and and experience the privilege but um, to enter in and so I just think it's really beautiful that God um, in his but ultimately it is God that is their deliverer it is him that says as they stand in this kind of pinnacle where they hit the red Sea, and it's like where do we go from here and God says you only need to be still and I will fight for you um, and so that God is ultimately the deliverer, and He is the one who enters in, um, but that He chooses people that He's shared His power with um, to enter into these things and to really be advocates for the oppressed and the most vulnerable.
1: Where, where do you see this, Will? Yeah.
0: So in in Leviticus, especially in in chapters nineteen and twenty, um, you know, I think God makes this pretty clear in in giving the nation laws that will um protect the most vulnerable among them and this is incredibly countercultural even today uh, if you think in in ancient cultures when there was a king really the kingdom was set up to protect the assets of the king not to care about the most vulnerable the most vulnerable were servants right they served the king um, even in the foundation of our country and I, I think it this may have come up at a first Wednesday you know our laws were established to um, to protect landowners and that was a, a small minority of the population you know most people couldn't vote right but landowners could so we see this in, in cultures even today where the wealthy you know have the access to make the laws um, and oftentimes those protect their wealth when God is establishing laws for his nation his display people he he enacts laws that will protect the rights of the most vulnerable so we see things like in um, in chapter 19 um, you know, the, the Israelites are commanded to not gather all of, all of their harvest, right? In verses nine and 10, but to leave some of the harvest for the poor, if it's their grapes, if it's, you know, whatever they're growing, not to, to gather everything, but to leave some for people who need help, right? In verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 35 to 37, God commands his people to use just or accurate weights and balances. Mm-hmm. So when people are trading, you can't, you can't try to cheat someone and gain the system to increase your profit at their expense, mm. right? You can't charge them more for what they're trying to buy because that's not fair to people who are under-resourced. Um, we see, you know, God commands them not to steal. And I think we think about this mm. as like a burglar with a, a Lone Ranger mask on, right? Yeah. Oh, don't steal. But what God is saying is don't steal in the way that Pharaoh stole from you. hmm Right. So the people that have power and control are commanded not to steal, not to interact um, unjustly with those who are more vulnerable, but rather to establish laws that care for these people in vulnerable situations. And God reminds them continually. You were sojourners in Egypt. Right. I rescued you when you were vulnerable like this, when you were crying out. Don't forget that and so i think especially if we're talking about implications for us as believers right we would we would all agree that we are sinful by nature we are under-resourced spiritually and jesus purchased us by his death and resurrection and so then when we don't extend, extend that same grace and concern for the vulnerable, for the least of these, with which Jesus identifies himself in Matthew 25, you know, things become problematic in the church. And so we Mm -hmm. have to have this continued focus of it's clear that God cares about this. It's probably clear that I'm passionate about (laughs) this too, by the way I'm talking about it. But, you know, God says in in chapter 19, verse 15, that there shouldn't be favoritism, right? And I think Mm -hmm. we tend towards a prosperity gospel where if you're faithful, then God will bless you with riches, or we can tend towards a poverty gospel where, oh, the poor are the most holy and we should just get rid of everything and be poor ourselves. But God actually calls us for justice hmm. to, for what is right, not to esteem one or the other, but actually to esteem what is right and and, and what is fair and what he calls us to.
1: You know, what's interesting is um, I think what you see in Pharaoh, uh, the the types of, people that he is exploiting or harming in the very beginning is uh, on one hand, uh, the, the babies, the babies, the Israelite babies. See, Israel is afraid or Pharaoh is afraid of the economic impact that this, these refugee foreigners are going to have on Egypt. He's afraid of the economics. He's afraid that they're going to get power, that they're going to take away jobs, or, or or whatever and so what he does is he creates these systems of oppression the first one is that he's basically they're drowning babies in the river mm-hmm. the second one is that they are physically enslaving and, and harming uh, the immigrant the refugee yeah and I think what's interesting is I think in our culture we have these binary idolatries that both resemble Pharaoh. Mm. You have the idols of the the left who are basically throwing babies in the river through a, yeah. abortion. Mm. And you have the idols of the right that are up for oppressing the foreigner and not mm. caring for, for their flourishing and being okay if... Uh, If ISIS bombs their their town and that their children die and that their children wash up on the shores, Mm -hmm. as long as it's not the Americans, as long as it's not the Egyptian people uh, Mm -hmm. that are harmed. And I'd say uh, just because you're caring for one type of vulnerable person doesn't mean that you yourself are not complicit in Pharaoh's schemes in the 21st century Mm -hmm. uh, to harm someone else and... I think part of what it looks like for us to be a unique and distinct people that show, that are a light to the nations are by caring for all of of the, the vulnerable, all of the people, um, not just the particular suffering that we tend to like more or that is a little more palatable with whatever sort of system we're bowing our knee to. And so uh, I think that, that what's so powerful about this is uh, God he serves the most vulnerable in this unique way with the laws that he sets up to where it's not just a pure handout um, like the the gleaning laws mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, The the Israelites were commanded to not basically harvest their whole crop but to leave some that were there but the poor who were among them they would actually get to to harvest and experience the dignity of the, the, the work of harvesting that and preparing that that food um, but also it's so there's not the handout thing but there's also not the hoarding mentality that says everything that I own belongs to me no God has given it to you uh, so that he through your hands can distribute it uh, to your your neighbor and I yeah, you were going to say, well, I see it in your in, in <laughs> eyes, you're going to say something. Well, I think he's
0: cultivating this posture that just presses against our fears, hmm. right? Like, Jim, like you said, like, Pharaoh was afraid. Yeah. Right? Pharaoh feared the Hebrews because of, the, you know, the economics, the, you know, everything you listed, that was that was wonderful. And I think that, you know, he's, like, Tina mentioned this, right? It's a nation of slaves who have no skilled expertise that basically overthrow one of the most powerful nations by not doing anything, Hmm. but allowing God to be God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he continually reminds them of that. Like, I delivered you out of Egypt. Powerhouse, militarily advanced Egypt by his might. And so I think if we are trusting in God... Then the concept of like, well, I don't know if we're too welcoming, you know, what, what if, what if, and and we're motivated by fear, it it just becomes silly because we see how God moves and how God acts and how, you know, God cares and God protects. Now, not that we should be unwise, but I think we shouldn't be motivated in our decisions by fear, but rather by faith in who God is and what his character is like. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I've even seen echoes of this in the New Testament in the parable of the man who just completely continues to store up more and more and more in the storehouses and God's judgment is no joke on that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think another echo that I hear in this, uh, is it gives some light to, uh, what's happening with race relations in the country Mm -hmm. with police and, uh, and those sorts of things. I mean, you see right there in the beginning of Exodus, you see, the authorities, the people with power, disregarding the lives of of the people that they have a, a authority over, and physically harming yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And and when I read that, I hear the echoes of uh, the the many black men unarmed who have been shot and killed by those with authorities who are legally able to carry the gun. Uh, and but then on the other hand, you see Moses mm-hmm. and his reaction to that. He tries to take things into his own hands, and he basically goes and kills uh, an Egyptian as he gets rightfully outraged about it. But then his outrage turns into killing an Egyptian. He takes it into his own hands. Functionally, Moses is the cop killer in mm-hmm. this. Uh, yeah. He's the Dallas shooter. Um and uh, and and really, what you see in the testimony of, of Exodus is neither letting the killing of the innocent just go, mm-hmm. nor taking it into your own hands with violence, but of this creating uh, creative dependence on God mm-hmm. and calling on God to fight on your behalf, and uh, God intervening in all of these creative ways. God could have just taken the people out of Egypt. He could have just said like, okay, Israelites, (laughs) let's go. And in like 10 minutes, they're gone. Mm -hmm. He could have held back the Egyptians. But I think part of what's happening through the repeated hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the new uh, plagues that is showing is that God is publicly demonstrating Mm -hmm. to the nations that he is a God who fights on behalf of the vulnerable and that the, the God, that Pharaoh who's deified in this culture, um, the one who oppresses the poor, um, does not get the last word. And the, the Israelites don't quietly walk out, but God exposes that system of injustice for what it is. Um, one last question. I just want to leave with this is probably one of the most beautiful yet overlooked chapters of the Bible is Leviticus 25 uh, in, in, when it talks about the Jubilee laws mm. and the Sabbath year um, wh- why don't we just describe together what's happening in the Jubilee year so, so what go- what's going down in the Jubilee year
0: mm. um, yeah things are restored um, if, if people have gone into debt or, or servitude they're, they're restored back to them Um, It seems like there's an economic leveling of the playing field where um, God wants everyone to flourish. Not just those who have had an easier path to flourishing, but also those who have had a difficult path to flourishing. um, That people are called to pull themselves you know, up by the bootstraps, so to speak, they are, you know, they like Jim said, we don't harvest all the grapes, but leave some for other people to harvest, but there's also a realization that through generations, um, the playing field becomes uneven, and God yeah. calls for the nation to level that playing field.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because um, w- what you have is you have the Sabbath year, uh, which is the, the seventh year, so you work for six years, and then you get a seventh year off Mm -hmm. and during that time you can't work the fields you can't eat from the fields you have to just depend on a good harvest in order to sustain you through that time Uh, I I just think what imagine what it would be like for a whole community to have a year off Mm. where you're partying together (laughs) where you're eating good food Mm -hmm. where you're resting and you're spending time with family if you think about it every child would probably get at least two uh sabbath years uh in their their childhood and that that would probably be the year of of their best memories mm-hmm. um, and then this whole jubilee year is like the 49th year it's after what like seven uh mm-hmm. um seven sabbath years you have this massive jubilee year where all all the debts all the land is being returned to original owners uh, anyone who has been bound as like indentured servants or slaves is is released, and the debts are are, are released. And one of the things that this really shows to me is, is it's crazy. I think that this challenges both like the ideas of like socialism mm-hmm. or like, like rampant um, you know uh, materialism, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. capitalism, those sorts of things. What it does is it basically says. That not everybody ends at the same finish line in life. Like, you, if you work harder, you could get ahead of someone else. It allows yeah. for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not saying everyone should have the same amount of money, the same amount of stuff. Everyone ends at the same finish line. But what it is saying is is not everyone ends at the same finish line, but everyone should start at the same starting line. Have the yeah. same access to opportunity for flourishing and what the jubilee year would would create is this uh, this opportunity for it would stop poverty from being this perpetual generation thing where you just dig yourself into a deeper and deeper hole. Yeah. And so I think as we reflect on God's heart and what that looks like in the 21st century, I think one of the things that comes to mind is pushing back against uh Systems that perpetuate poverty throughout mm-hmm. generations. Yeah. Uh, one of them uh, would be like payday lending that almost guarantees um, that people um, are in um, that that people uh, I'm sorry are in um, a perpetual poverty uh, for multiple generations. Uh, another thing would be um, just providing access for good training and economic opportunity for people. Now people have to take advantage of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, They they have to work hard within it. Um, But it is one of those things where it seems like it's God's heart. It's the nature of image bearing to have an opportunity to both rest and to work with your hands and make something of the world. So um, with that, I think we've talked quite a bit and it's good <laughs> to end uh, with the words of, of the Jubilee and um, and reflecting on that um, one thing we want to encourage you to look forward to that's coming up is we have a first Wednesday that's coming up, coming up very soon it's going to be on uh, politics and the imagination where we try to instead of stepping, instead of thinking about the typical binary questions that that are being bantered about and argued about on Facebook. We wanna step outside of that and imagine what would it look like to be a unique and distinct people that show what God is like as we engage in politics that bows to neither the idolatries of the left nor the right. So uh, with that said, we hope that you hang out with us on November 2nd at 6 p.m. at Redemption Tempe. And that's all we have for today. Uh, Thank you, Will, thank you, Tina, Uh, thank you thank you myself and uh, we'll (laughs) see you guys later